G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Uh, good, thanks, Rowan. Partly because I've kept up the cold water swimming, as uh, last podcast encouraged me to keep on doing. Can't just talk about it, have to do it. Yeah, so that's helping you a bit. How about you? How's the exercise been going for you after the last couple of podcasts? I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't done as much this week as I'd like to. I, for example, I had a webinar before work this morning and I had a bit to do yesterday morning and an extra recording throughout the day. So, look, I must admit, again, like I sit here and probably realise I have to maybe prioritise things a little bit more, but we'll continue that chat off air, Dad, because I must admit I hadn't held myself to the same account that you're holding me to at the moment. Well, maybe we have to send Effie, our dog, <laughs> in your direction again so you're up at five o'clock before you do these podcasts and other things. I think so. Well, to be honest, Dad, I reckon today's episode is going to come in handy, particularly for if I ever do get around to cold water swimming, because today's episode is on panic. And I reckon that is something that, you know, I would be doing a fair bit of if I jumped in the cold water at this time of year. But we've called today's episode Developing a Perspective on Panic. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of a brief overview? What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, one of the most common reasons that people seek psychological help is panic attacks. And especially if people have persistent panic attacks, which are very disruptive to their everyday life, and sometimes that can underlie another kind of condition that people can develop, agoraphobia. And that's where people take action to try and avoid places that might induce panic or that they're fearful that they might experience panic, whether it be in a supermarket or wide open spaces or things like that. So we'll come back and talk about agoraphobia a little bit later on. But panic attacks or something we call panic disorder a particular condition, and then agoraphobia. These are related anxiety disorders or anxiety reactions around panic that will describe shortly exactly what panic is. And it could just be something through virtue of, you know, maybe getting a little bit older, but it seems that panic attacks, for example, are, you know, it's a terminology that we hear a little bit more often than we used to. Like, I think back, we're having a little bit of a chat before off air, like, you know, I suppose the stereotypical idea of a panic attack back in the day was almost, you know, someone being a bit hysterical and then it's almost, you know, pull yourself together, man, and you slap them across the face. Like, I think of of that great scene in that movie Flying High where, you know, it's basically a a bunch of people lining up to sort of do that same thing. But, like, it it seemed that we didn't necessarily have, like, a, a, I suppose, a real idea of even what a panic attack was in a, a clinical sense. And so it was almost this idea of, you know, you slap someone back into the current moment and you sort of slap them back into action a little bit. But of course, that's a a horrendous, you know, way to deal with something like that is is violently. So it seems that, uh, yeah, we've maybe picked up on a little bit more these days. Yes, and I suppose that example, like in Flying High, it's got this notion of a real problem of people being out of control. And that's certainly a sense that people have when they're having a panic attack of feeling out of control. And I think that what you mentioned in that scene in the movie, there's like this judgment of someone else, you know, Get yourself together, that kind of thing. But I think with panic attacks, sometimes people can have some undue pressure on themselves to get their act together or get back in control. There can be too much pressure on oneself to be feeling, if you like, regulated or calm when during a panic reaction, people are going to feel anything but. But the good news is people will come back into a more regulated state soon enough And so as we're going to be talking about through this whole podcast is the key issue is not panic itself, which is very uncomfortable 
but not dangerous. The key problem is panic about the panic. And as we talk further about a range of different things to do with panic, hopefully those messages come through strongly. Because if people can develop a perspective that panic is uncomfortable but not dangerous, that will help people get back to a more regulated state a lot quicker and, dare I say, more confidently. Well, it strikes me off the top that that's something that's, you know, potentially pretty hard to do in many ways. And, you know, I think of, of times when I've panicked in a situation and, you know, it seems that many of those situations were inherently dangerous. Like, you know, I think back to a time with you and I, Dad, and a hot air balloon and a, another hot air balloon that was coming at us pretty quick. And I'll tell you what, we did some panicking then in that situation. But it seems to me that, you know, in many ways, panicking is a, a natural emotion. It's a natural situation that we might find ourselves in. So how do we differentiate between, say, you know, noticing a car that's coming at us at a high speed and we don't notice it until a second or two after then is comfortable like how do we differentiate between that kind of panic and a panic attack well it can be very difficult at the time because in any particular moment where we perceive something as dangerous whether it is dangerous or not if we perceive it that way as life-threatening or dangerous then our body is quite literal our body will respond as we perceive something and will react similarly as though we are in danger. So in other words, with certain fight and flight and freeze reactions that through evolution, our body has learnt to respond that way to help us keep alive. But the problem is, if we perceive something as dangerous at the time, then that's going to tend to lead to an increase in cortisol and adrenaline pumping through our system. We can go into that sympathetic nervous system where our muscles are tightening, ready to fight or flee. It changes our breathing patterns. It changes our heart rate. These things actually can help us escape when we really are in danger. The problem is at the time if we perceive something as dangerous, including if we perceive a panic attack as dangerous, then we'll tend to panic about the panic. And that's the problem. Then those reactions can compound. So... The kind of things that happen in our body during a panic attack are pretty similar to what will be happening when we're in actual danger. It's often afterwards when we look back and we can see our reaction for what it was. If we've recognised that we've developed a pattern of repeated panic kind of reactions, even though it doesn't seem that there's so much danger then we can learn to perceive that situation differently. We can develop a different perspective on that kind of panic that helps us recognise when it's not dangerous. It's just a way that our body might be overreacting at the time because our mind, for whatever reason, has perceived a situation as being dangerous or threatening. Well, what I wonder about that then, like, is that obvious in terms of, like, when you're in that situation and going through that, you know, is it starkly obvious that, you know, for example, I've just had a panic attack because, you know... In that situation, say, for example, a car's coming at you or something like that, like you might not necessarily have a distinct memory of the event. Like you think of, say, traumatic events and all this sort of stuff. You may not necessarily have like a, a chronological narrative of in this moment, this is kind of what I felt. And then, you know, you might just be almost overwhelmed by the entire situation. And I suppose even, you know, just, just to mention sort of thing, like I reckon there's maybe two times where I've kind of questioned whether I've had a panic attack sort of thing. And, you know, one time, like, for example, I was walking in, in the city of Melbourne and, you know, had, had a bit going on at the time or whatever. And I remember looking up at the buildings and it was as if the buildings just 
almost literally closed in on me. Like, you know, you had a sense that they were kind of over there a couple of hundred metres away. And then all of a sudden you felt that they were kind of on all sides. And my perception was almost, you know, in my immediate vicinity, I'd lost kind of that wider perspective on even, you know, where I was in the centre of Melbourne and all this sort of stuff. But the feeling that I kind of had straight after that was it was kind of like, gee, like, was that a panic attack sort of thing? Like, it wasn't as even as if it was, you know, obvious to me at that time exactly what it was and, you know, who knows what it could have been in some ways. But uh, but I wonder if the experience of a panic attack is something that is often obvious to someone who's gone through it. Well, that's a good question to bring up because sometimes the symptoms or reactions that go with panic can be more obvious or less obvious. Sometimes it might be more obvious, for example, if people have felt really hot and sweaty and their heart has beaten fast and they notice that their breathing's changed a lot, that can be some of the more obvious symptoms of a panic attack. But there can be other ones, I can think of an example as well, where a friend at uni suddenly stopped and said, did anyone feel that? We're asking, well, what was the person noticing? And she said she felt like the floor tilted the floor was angled under our feet. Now, none of us around had felt that at the time, but couldn't help but wondering if it was partly that that was around exam time. A number of us were experiencing stresses in different ways. And one of the ways that we can experience stress is through panic-like symptoms that I'll describe shortly. But the main thing in common, and this is the definition of a panic attack, is that it's an abrupt or a sudden surge of intense fear or discomfort. And it typically reaches a peak within minutes. And a panic attack has to include at least four symptoms, not just one, like you mentioned, that experience of like buildings seeming closer, that kind of thing. It's when you have at least four symptoms that tend to go with fight, flight, freeze type reactions. Well, I wonder if it's even worth describing, as you say, like what some of those symptoms are, because like, for example, you know, an an intense period of discomfort, intense period of intense discomfort, like... Geelong lost a grand final a couple of years ago, Dad, and that was a pretty intense period of discomfort. But I don't know if clinically it you know, would necessarily be called a panic attack. So how do we differentiate between, say, a distressing experience which might come up in you know, everyday life, hopefully not too often, losing a grand final, but how do we differentiate between something like that and a, a panic attack in itself? Okay, so panic attacks are intense and brief. So they build up within minutes and they're usually settling within minutes. If it's something which is like, if it's distress which persists over hours, we generally not think of that as a panic attack. It's more like this sudden burst, this intense feeling of discomfort that subsides. But basically, by definition, it's got at least four of these 13 symptoms that I'll read out. And so it's partly pounding or racing heart, Sweating, trembling, shortness of breath, feelings of choking, chest pain or discomfort, stomach pain or nausea, feeling dizzy or lightheaded, chills or hot flushes, numbness or tingling, derealization or depersonalization. That's a feeling like things aren't real, a little bit like what you described with those buildings, or depersonalization, experiencing our body has changed in some way. A fear of going crazy and a fear of dying. So those last couple really related to feelings of losing control, going crazy or, or dying. So a panic attack is where people have at least four of those 13 symptoms 
at one period of time that builds up within a few minutes, typically settles within a few minutes, and about 10% of people are going to have a reaction like that in any one year. So they're not uncommon. That's why they're not just diagnosed as a particular clinical problem in itself. It could just be a passing reaction that we have at the time. And so then, does it always accompany, say, like that feeling of discomfort or that, say, negative overarching feeling with it? Because, you know, looking at some of these symptoms here, like pounding or racing heart, you know, trembling, even shortness of breath, even at times, you know, a bit of nausea, feeling sort of dizzy, chills, numb, like, like a lot of them could be, say, positive emotions of, say, being excited for something or being euphoric in a moment, like... Is it that, for example, the panic attack has this kind of sense of negativity or or sense of discomfort that accompanies it too? Yeah, a couple of really important things in that, which is actually our body reacts exactly the same in many ways when we're excited, like that positive emotion, as when we're distressed. And so that's when our breathing might change, our heart might speed up, we might even be trembling with excitement. But the thing with panic attacks is, yes, generally they'll be perceived in quite a negative way as a distressing kind of reaction. And in the long run, that's one thing that helps people change their experience of panic when they learn over time, if they've got these repeated reactions, that it's not so dangerous then people can alter their perspective of that at the time. But still, it's likely to feel quite uncomfortable at the time and by definition. And so then what about, say, panic disorder, for example? Like, is it the case where, like you mentioned before about panic attacks, having panic attacks, not necessarily a clinically diagnosable thing. Like, is panic disorder, for example, where someone gets multiple panic attacks over a period of time and then we call that series of panic attacks panic disorder like is it possible to get panic attacks without it being classified as a disorder yes now we only call it a disorder if there's certain other conditions apply and one thing is they have to be recurrent panic attacks typically the way we look at that is if people have had about four panic attacks in the period of a month I don't think it strictly has to be that time frame anymore, but if people have had recurrent panic attacks and also that they're unexpected, they're not just related to a phobia of heights or of driving, which we'll talk about in the next podcast, or to the triggering of trauma memories, for example. But the nature of a panic disorder is where people develop a persistent worry about repeated attacks, and that goes on for at least a month. So the person's had at least one panic attack that afterwards they've developed this worry about getting another one and that continues on for at least a month and or it leads to some kind of unhelpful or maladaptive change in the person's behaviour so they don't get any other attacks or out of fear of getting other attacks. For example, a person might avoid exercise because they're fearful of getting that feeling of their heart rate building up and maybe feeling hot or sweaty. So they come to avoid that situation which has a negative impact on their life in some way. So it's not just having those symptoms, but it's having at least four of them a number of times recurrently as well as this worry about them happening again or avoiding situations out of fear that they'll happen again. And so it seems to me that that, so panic attacks are one thing in itself, but even and when they come up repeatedly and unexpectedly, that's when they, I suppose, graduate, for lack of a better term, to a, a panic disorder. Yes, and that's where the essence of it tends to be a panic about the panic being really fearful or worried about getting that reaction happening again. And so whereas about 10% of people will have a panic attack in any particular year, only about 2 to 3% will have a panic disorder. 
Now, that's quite a proportion. And if you think about it, when we think of those symptoms that people might have, including feeling dizzy or lightheaded or numb or fear of going crazy, fear of dying, now if people are going to have those kind of reactions, it's understandable that the panic attacks will lead them to feel more fearful and go on to develop a panic disorder and really thinking, what can I do to prevent this from happening again? But ultimately, that can become part of the problem. In the long run, there's no way really around it other than the person learning to become a little bit more accepting of dealing with the feelings of panic. Then, funnily enough, that's when they tend to lessen, have less impact. And at least for a number of people, they might just go away. But part of the trick is, if we make the goal eliminating the panic attacks that can get into a problem of looking for over-control and then, in a sense, overreacting or feeling panic if they come up again. So a whole lot of the deal is looking to manage with the panic reactions so they don't have so much impact and people have more success in dealing with them that way. And so what causes panic attacks then? Because... Like, you know, if we, I suppose, use this analogy of a, a car coming towards us, you know, 100 miles an hour, we sort of see it, you know, and we go, oh, gee, that's pretty close, feel a little bit panicked in that situation. Like, to me, that's, you know, it's, a, it's an obvious situation that, you know, we would employ, our, I suppose, survival instincts for in that situation. But it seems to me that, like, with panic, a lot of the situations that we kind of employ these survival tactics for it's a little bit more up for interpretation in terms of, I can think back to that time when you know I was walking around the center of Melbourne there was nothing obvious in that moment you know for example coming for me or or putting me in any immediate physical danger but it was just that I'd interpreted it in that way and, and potentially you know I would have interpreted it differently you know later on and even looking back now sort of interpreted a little bit differently so what actually causes I suppose that interpretation of our kind of survival instincts and the mechanisms that would take over in that physically dangerous situation to also take over when we're having a panic attack. Yes, well, I'll come back to talking about some of the things that might contribute to those unexpected panic attacks, the ones that come out of the blue that are a feature of panic disorder. But probably it helps to, first of all, contrast some of the situations where we might more understandably have a panic-like reaction or an anxiety reaction. For example, if we know we've got a phobia of enclosed spaces, so maybe fearful of being in a plane or going in a cave or an elevator, there might be some situations that suggest that people have a fear of not getting enough air. I can remember someone who had asthma as a child and they also nearly drowned in a particular incident. So naturally they might develop more of a phobia for some situations where they might not get enough air. And they learnt that, so the panic will tend to come up more if they're about to get in an elevator, for example, or have to go on a plane trip. Or it could be if people have performance anxiety in some way. So it's when they're about to sing on stage or or talk in public, so they can relate their anxiety or panic to that situation. It could be also a triggering of trauma memories can bring up feelings of panic, like people remembering a, a recent car accident, that happening. With social anxiety, it could be any situation where we feel that we're about to be the centre of attention. For example, someone at their birthday party might start feeling panic if they think the cake's about to come out and they're about to be the centre of attention. So there are a number of ways that people can experience anxiety or panic kind of reactions. But where it's more weird and where it's more difficult is if that comes out of the blue and unexpectedly. And in that situation, there's one of the more common things, I think, that can cause that. And it's often... If there's some background stress that might have been building up for 
half an hour or so, or it might be stress over a period of days. And people might not realise this, but they might be changing their breathing patterns. Sometimes people, without realising it, are hyperventilating. The best way of guessing if this might be happening is if the person tends to feel dizzy with their panic attacks. If they often feel dizzy, the person, when stressed, might be in a pattern of either holding their breath or over-breathing. And there are different ways that this can lead to changes in their brain. Funnily enough, it can change how much oxygen or carbon dioxide people have in their brain. And what that means is then it can trigger these panic kind of reactions because of, in the end, not having enough oxygen. This is a weird-sounding thing. I'll describe something later on that we do in a therapy session when people often feel dizzy and panic attacks. We might get them to deliberately pant or hyperventilate. And if people do that over about half a minute to a minute, they might start to experience some of the symptoms that go with a panic attack, such as feeling hot or feeling dizzy or noticing that they're getting short of breath. It's hard to keep on going in some way. Maybe they'll also have some odd feelings like feel foggy in the head, something like that. So that is one of the things that might induce it. But probably when people have unexpected panic attacks, there are two background things happening. One is the person's probably quite sensitive to changes in their body and the person might have a more sensitive central nervous system anyway. Now that's often a good thing. If we're quite sensitive in our central nervous system, we can pick up on people's feelings more readily. It might help being intuitive in some ways, but it can be a liability under stress. If we're also particularly attuned to changes in our heart rate or temperature or something feeling different in our body, then that extra sensitivity can lead us to feel, oh, there might be something going wrong. And the other thing that tends to develop is avoidance. If people, for example, are avoiding exercise or avoiding situations where they think that they might feel panicky or might get a panic attack, avoid situations involving some kind of performance or scrutiny of other people, any kind of avoidance that we go into can tend to worsen panic. And so you tend to get that oversensitivity and avoidance. And that's where a whole lot of the therapy approaches encourage people to face situations where they might more likely induce some of these reactions, see how they settle over a period of time, and become more confident managing them, maybe using some therapy techniques. And so is it the case then that, say for example, you know, I'm someone who experiences panic attacks, you know, semi-regularly, Is it the case that it's likely to have a similar cause each time in terms of whether it be that lack of breath, whether it be that being in a plane sort of feeling outside of my control, you know, I might be in a plane and an elevator sort of thing. Like, is it likely to be that someone who experiences panic attacks, it could be a range of causes cause that panic attack in a particular situation? Or is it that, for example, I might be a little bit more individually susceptible to whether it be a shortness of breath, and that's maybe the main cause of panic attacks for me. I think there'll tend to be multiple causes, and they can be both internal, like, for example, our heart rate might be increasing a little bit, and we might start reacting to that even without being consciously aware that we're reacting to that. So it could be some kind of internal change or starting to sweat. It might be picking up on that and then reacting to that because we might associate sweat with a panic attack. But it also can be external and sometimes really hard to get at. For example, one fellow I know, a client I saw, had a really severe panic attack whilst away with his family on a weekend holiday. Now, 
He was happy to be away with his weekend on a family holiday. It was only in retrospect he realised that what triggered his panic attack was probably looking off the coast at water. Normally a peaceful thing, we might think that would actually lead you to feel relaxed. But in retrospect, he was able to piece back that looking out over the water whilst with his family on holiday, it brought back certain memories of being at a camp where people went on canoes in a lake and they were swimming and a lot of the activities were around a camp where I suspect he might have had a lot of experiences of also being bullied on that camp or a lot of negative experiences certainly on that camp and maybe feeling isolated and disconnected from other people. Just seeing the body of water was like a subliminal trigger for these other kind of reactions. Now, I think most people, if they had that kind of triggering memory, probably wouldn't notice, probably would never figure out what that was. And that shows how these things can be very difficult to discern. So people are going to have more triggers, if you like, if people have had more experience in the past of abuse or trauma. Also, maybe if people have had some kind of complicated illnesses or medical reactions in their body, I think these things can then be a little bit more of a trigger in the future. But the other thing is having panic attacks themselves. Then people can have a memory of previous panic attacks and getting some kind of internal sensation or maybe being in the same location as where they previously had a panic attack. Even subliminally, like one lady I know, she started having panic attacks in church. It was only a while later she realised that she'd learnt that a friend, not a close friend, but an acquaintance friend, had died in that church, had a heart attack and died. In the back of her mind, she'd come to associate being in that church with threat or danger and these panic symptoms would come up so people aren't always going to notice even if there is a trigger there sometimes it'll be more obvious sometimes less obvious but we call it a panic disorder if there are a number of times when it's unexpected and less obvious so what can we do about in that situation like when I you know ask that question about whether everyone maybe has their own individual I suppose cause of a panic attack i was hoping you'd say in a way you know yeah like you know most people will have their i suppose main cause of anxiety and if we can you know maybe get at the heart of that anxiety then it helps to stop people experiencing panic attacks like like that seems so difficult in many ways to even get to the heart of some of that like as you're saying like the brain is very good at suppressing negative experiences it seems to me and so even recognizing what those negative experiences are could be difficult as you say so like what can we do in that situation because like you mentioned for example having multiple panic attacks but inherently part of the thing about a panic attack it's not necessarily something you can just induce it you know the click of a finger sort of thing it's you know a little bit more intense than that so how do we go about i suppose managing the experience of say regular panic attacks that do come up okay well here's the difficult thing basically people have to face the discomfort that's where the main psychological strategies involve a form of exposure where people face the discomfort Now, one of the more obvious ways of doing that is if people, in addition to having panic attacks and panic disorder, if people also have agoraphobia. So agoraphobia is where people are avoiding certain kind of situations where they're fearful that panic attacks may occur. And I'll describe a couple of the main, more obvious situations. One is when there are a lot of people around, like in a supermarket, like going through a checkout in a supermarket. Another might be when people are on their own and there's no one else around. 
and this might sound strange, but sometimes we ask people who have panic attacks, would they be more fearful of having a panic attack on a crowded street or an empty street? Now, when people are more fearful of a crowded street, they're more fearful of having a panic attack and losing control and making an idiot of themselves. They might have a fear of going crazy, acting uncontrolled, people seeing them, looking strange, that kind of thing. And that's where people are more likely to develop a kind of agoraphobia in terms of avoiding supermarkets, lest they get caught with their shopping trolley and not be able to escape if they have some kind of panic reaction. But people can also be fearful of an empty street because they might associate their heart rate change or feeling hot with something going wrong with their body. They might be fearful of having a heart attack. And I know some people, for example, who wouldn't travel in their car more than a few kilometres from a hospital. So their phobia was of having a heart attack, in a sense, mistaking the panic symptoms for something wrong with their heart. Now, the difficult thing in each of these situations is people have to face their fear. So to some extent, which for some people with agoraphobia, if they're housebound, is just simply about getting outside the house. It might be starting by getting to the letterbox, then walking 50 metres down the street, then walking around the block, gradually going further afield before even going to a supermarket. But facing the fear is a key thing. So we look for situations that tend to bring up the panic reactions and help the person face them step by step after maybe showing them a few techniques to help manage with panic a little bit further. But there are also ways that we can help people induce some of the panic feelings more directly that they can do even in a therapist's office. And by doing that, people can practice dealing with some of the panic reactions whilst they have the therapist there. And so that's a bit of a difficult one in some ways because it seems that, you know, part of, you know, as you say, like panic attacks and agoraphobia as well is that idea of facing the fear. But if the fear itself is a panic attack, like with, for example, a panic disorder, like like how do we do that in that situation where to face the fear, you know, that's the inherent thing that we're fearful in itself. Like it's almost a bit of a catch-22 in some ways. Like how do we navigate that situation? Okay, well, there are a few things that we can do in a session itself that can bring up some of these feelings and help people identify whether that's like their panic and then practice dealing with that. And the go-to thing, the first thing we tend to do is get the person to hyperventilate. So I might say to the person, okay, we're going to do something. It might sound a little bit strange. We're going to deliberately hyperventilate or over-breathe for about a minute. I'll do it with you. And when I start... We'll do this for about 60 seconds or so. That'll probably be long enough to induce some of these feelings. We're going to see what comes up for you and if it's a bit like the panic attacks that you've had. So we'll start off. Okay, ready, go. (laughs) And I'll be doing that with a person. And after um, about 15 seconds, I might say, that's good, keep going. After about 30 seconds, (laughs) I might be doing it with them and saying, I'm starting to notice a ringing in my ears, which I often get. Then after about 15 seconds more, I'm encouraging the person to keep on going. I might say, I'm getting foggy in the head. Just notice what you notice. And then after a minute, it's obvious enough, then we can stop. The person often looks a little bit uncomfortable and I can ask them, did you notice some things then? They'll typically nod their head. I might ask them, what did you notice? They might describe feeling a little bit hot or their heart rate going up. Or they might often say, and I might ask them directly, did you feel dizzy? And about half the time, people say, Yes, look, I did, or a bit bit foggy in the head as well. And then I might ask them, is it like that? Is a panic attack a bit like that? Is that a bit how you feel in a panic attack? 
And again, about half the time at least, people say, yes, it is a little bit like that. And that makes all the world of difference if people realise that you can actually induce some of the feelings of panic reactions deliberately. In other words, it's the body's partly natural response to over-breathing. And what's happening in that situation, funnily enough, if you breathe too quickly, you're getting rid of too much carbon dioxide. And that works in this complicated way to make your blood sticky and your blood holds on to the oxygen. It doesn't release the oxygen into your brain cells as much. And it's your brain cells not getting enough oxygen that leads you to feel more dizzy. So it's a quite a complicated biological reaction, but people get it, the idea that you can induce it. But there'll be other people where their main fear is their heart beating fast. They're fearful of having a heart attack. Well, it might be getting the person to run up and down on the spot for a while to deliberately induce that feeling of their heart rate going up and feeling uncomfortable with that. And then asking if their other reactions are similar to what they feel in a heart attack. And a third one is if people feel a bit dizzy is maybe getting them in a spinny chair and spinning them around and asking them after a period of time what that feels like, if that feels in some ways like reactions they get during panic. So by inducing some of the kind of reactions, by, for example, deliberately elevating their heart rate with exercise or the over-breathing, a number of people will recognise that they feel this discomfort, these strange feelings that go with panic. And if people can relate that to their panic attacks, that really helps because people are primed to recognise that it might be, again, very uncomfortable but not dangerous. These things can be induced by, in a sense, normal bodily mechanisms. And is that something that you would suggest that people mainly do with a therapist sort of thing? Like it seems to me that... There can be some elements of, of, say, panic and, say, this sort of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily want to induce those feelings and unless, A, you were ready for it and felt, you know, that you're ready to sort of take on that next task and you didn't have that support there. Like, it seems to me that, you know, if I, if I think to a maybe prominent example that's in the news at the moment about a, say, football camp, that maybe there wasn't, say, the support in that situation to administer some of those psychological interventions. Like, it seems to me that having the proper support and stability is something that's pretty important in that sense. Yes, that's a good point. Like, just say with that breathing exercise, maybe I should have said at first, don't try this at home if someone has had difficulty with panic attacks over a period of time. So if it was like a one-off reaction that people had and they weren't so bothered by it and wanted to uh, check that out, that would probably not be so dangerous. But yes, generally, when people have a panic disorder or real difficulty with panic attacks, which would be something like about 3 to 5% of all our clients would acknowledge that directly, that'd be a key reason why they would come in. There'd be another proportion of people that we would see who would have panic attacks in addition to whether it be depression or some other reaction. I should say that as well. Probably... About three quarters of people, at least probably about three quarters of people with panic disorder are likely to have had some other kind of reaction alongside that or condition like depression or trauma reactions or other kind of difficulties as well. It's in a sense uncommon to be just there on its own. And so many people, we also look out for panic reactions in addition to them seeking help for depression or something else because it is quite common. But the whole idea is recognising this kind of anxiety that peaks quickly, levels off and settles quickly, even if it's quite unexpected, 
And yes, we also encourage people to go and get a medical checkup first. I should have said that as well. Like if people are concerned about having a heart attack or something wrong with their cardiac functioning, yes, very important to have a checkup with a GP first. But when people have had those checkups and found there's nothing wrong with their heart and their physical health is generally fine, then that helps us be more confident of exploring these other kind of mechanisms that might be behind panic reactions and where we can more confidently encourage people to face that discomfort more directly to look to induce the panic itself and so it seems to me that broadly what we're trying to do is we're teaching someone that they can handle that situation we're teaching someone that they can deal with it and it's almost like there's kind of two elements to that there's the experiential aspect that you were describing there in terms of maybe inducing those emotions putting someone in that experiential situation and basically giving them the confidence that they can do that but then the other part is the, the educational part, which we almost spoke a little bit about before in terms of, you know, part of, I imagine, you know, managing with panic is recognising when you're in that situation, thinking to yourself things like, you know, it's the same physiological reaction as excitement, for example, and, and recognising that those, I suppose, physiological mechanisms, what they sort of mean and where they come from, like that, that's a big part of it. But it seems that you know we, we can go on with our own psychoeducation in some ways. Like we can learn more about panic, we can learn more about you know panic disorders, and maybe even what's motivating that for us. But from what you described there, the experiential side of things seems a little bit harder. You know whether it is you know inherent to the fact that it seems that maybe the the best situation is you know in a in a room with a therapist, which isn't necessarily the most common situation that we're in. Like. I wonder if there are any other ways that we can work on that experiential aspect of learning to deal with it without necessarily having to put ourselves in that intense situation of in, inducing the feeling similar to a panic attack and go, okay, now I can handle it. Like To me, that, that seems like quite an intense way of dealing with it in a way. Like I wonder, is there maybe some other ways, whether it be that people could go on with themselves at home, uh, that, that people could maybe start with as, as maybe a little bit less intense introduction to dealing with some panic feelings like how could someone go about I, I suppose wanting to to work on the experiential side of things without you know having to dive in too footed to the really intense experience of inducing those feelings okay well I might just say first also to put it in perspective today's been particularly about demystifying panic attacks and talking about some of the psychoeducation that we give people, some of the information about panic attacks and some of the techniques that we use for panic attacks themselves. But generally, when we're looking at panic attacks, it's like with other anxiety-related conditions as well. In therapy sessions, or just generally, we encourage people to use a number of other strategies that are worthwhile and helpful with a whole range of anxiety reactions, whether it be trauma reactions or obsessive-compulsive disorder or phobias. There are a number of general things that people can do. And one of the first of those is to develop some kind of discipline for lowering your arousal level generally. And that usually means some form of either relaxation or meditation or yoga or mindfulness exercises. These are disciplines that even if people practice them a few times a week for a month, for example, people will learn ways of lowering their arousal level. And that will have months and months of benefit, even six months after doing that. If the person tells themselves to relax or calm down, or just have their own way of relax, breathe, if people have engaged in those disciplines... They've done that for several times 
a week, for a month, something like that, then people are going to be in a better position to lower their arousal level. And if we have more general ways of lowering our arousal level, bringing our arousal level down, our stress levels down, we're less likely to have panic reactions in the first place. And so what can we do then if we find ourselves in that situation where we are having a panic attack? Because... You know, it seems that that is a a very legitimate part of it and that would, you know, mitigate against a whole range of circumstances that would induce a panic attack. But if we are in that situation where, you know, we're feeling, you know, the world sort of close in potentially, you know, it's a a very intense feeling, we're not going to be thinking about, you know, I put in a few extra practices in the morning time sort of thing. Like it's a bit more of a immediate sort of situation in terms of what we're focused on in that situation. Okay, well, there are two main things that help at the time that I say relate to mind and body. First of all, body. The first thing we can do to help regulate our arousal, bring down our stress levels, help reduce the panic, is slow breathing. Now, part of it is it helps reverse that over-breathing pattern that sometimes people have, so it helps things get back in better balance that way, better balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide in our brain, but also it has a relaxing effect itself to slow our breathing. So that's one thing, and generally where people practice that, where they take a slow breath once every five or six seconds, if people have practiced that sometimes, slow breathing, even when they've been feeling okay, maybe in the mornings they've practiced that, maybe in some therapy sessions, when the person at the time is feeling uncomfortable, and they tell themselves just breathe slowly or just breathe By having that little bit of practice of slow breathing, it's easier to do at the time, even when people feel a bit stressed. So that's one thing. But for one's mind, it helps to have some kind of coping statement or mantra, something the person can say to themselves that has a calming effect. And there are a number of particular ones that I think can particularly help for that. Well, it seems that a big part of those strategies is accepting that it's there in terms, you know, it's not necessarily that we can do something about the panic attack to stop it at that time. It seems that it's more about, for example, getting through it and letting it pass. So what are some of those mantras that maybe help with that? Yes, and as you say, it reminds me of this fellow, how he describes dealing with panic attacks by getting better at rolling with the punches. So just like you're saying, it's allowing for some of the panic to be there. It still is a bit like a punch. But there are ways at the time that people can settle themselves a bit with a couple of words or take the edge off it. Well, I reckon the best mantras generally have about two words to them, no more than two words. And the simpler, the better. They get across this idea of coping rather than mastery. Rather than being on top of things, it's just looking to get by. One simple one can just be breathe. Just breathe. Another one can get across the idea that it will pass in time. Just simply let it pass. Let it pass. Another one can simply be reminding yourself it's not dangerous. So I'll be okay. I'll be okay. I'll be okay. And finally, I'll mention one that a person came up with themselves. Sometimes it's really helpful if the person has their own unique way, something that comes to their mind. One example is a lady who just simply said to herself to accept the reactions coming up, let it be, let it be. And she was actually a singer. And in time, she changed it to a few bars of the Beatles song, let it be. And she just sing that to herself in her head. And that helped to get by. So again, these coping kind of statements, let it pass, I'll be okay, 
let it be. That just helps the back of your mind have more the sense that it's uncomfortable rather than dangerous, even though you're still going to feel a lot of discomfort at the time. And so then is it the case that once we, for example, experience the panic attack, kind of passing through, like we go through the experience of dealing with it in that situation, is it the case then that people are likely to be able to deal with kind of all subsequent panic attacks after that, having then kind of dealt with it in that situation? Or is it more common that people are... I suppose a little bit more gradually going to get to that situation of, of kind of having confidence in getting through it. For most people, it's going to be gradual. But part, again, of looking to demystify panic attacks is if people have only had one or two recent panic attacks and they understand more about panic, how it works, that it's not dangerous, then a number of those people will not have so much problem with it again after that. They'll recognise a panic attack when it comes up be able to put it in perspective and not maybe go on to develop a panic disorder. However, many people that we see will have had recurrent panic attacks for a period of years and they'll be quite disruptive in their everyday life. The truth of it is a lot of those people are going to still experience panic attacks sometimes for the indefinite future. The good news is they tend to become less disruptive. There are a couple of ways of reflecting that. One is even the incidence of panic disorder. It's about half in the mid-50s to what it would be in the mid-30s, for example. So it's getting less prevalent as people age. By the mid-60s, it halves again. So only about a quarter of the people in their mid-60s would have panic disorder relative to those in their mid-30s or 40s, for example. In other words, what's happening? There are a couple of things. Maybe people's reactions are becoming a little bit dampened, meaning their central nervous system might not be quite as reactive. But part of it's going to be learning. The person's learnt more, maybe from bitter experience as well, that these reactions do pass. Maybe they're still very uncomfortable at the time, but don't have to be quite so disruptive. And many people who apply the techniques we've talked about in this podcast find that that helps them be less disruptive. So the way that one person put it, who'd been practising dealing with panic attacks for quite some time, they'd still be coming up in a range of different situations, would describe that I won't let it encompass my whole being. So that's how it used to be. It used to be taking over his whole reactions and last, having a lasting impact for a day or so, feeling dreadful afterwards. Now he'd say, it's not dampening my day. So in other words, after having such a reaction he would notice his ways of getting back on track and still being able to do things afterwards that he enjoys. So before, it wouldn't just be the panic attack itself. It would have quite a lingering impact and affect the person's confidence, capacity to face a whole range of different situations. Now, with exposure, people get better at feeling confident. They can still go to the supermarket, walk down the street, range of different situations. But often people will still be feeling panic reactions to some degree that might be less frequent, less intense. So for quite a few people, it no longer meets the definition of panic disorder as they age. There's not quite the level of worry. And people tend to refer to their panic reactions over time as more a kind of discomfort rather than fear, showing that they have demystified that danger aspect of it. So generally, it does improve that way, especially when people use the techniques we've talked about. 
I suppose then a, a final question for me about that is like one, one thing that I hear is, you know, someone who is not necessarily in the know in terms of knowing, you know, whether or not this would be exactly appropriate. But like here, for example, say one in four people in Australia are on antidepressant or anti-anxiolytic medication. Like it seems to me from what we've spoken about today, part of anti-anxiolytic medication could maybe deal with the discomfort of having a panic attack but from what we've spoken about today, like it seems that there's maybe some more underlying causes that could motivate that in the first place. Like, how does medication come into the treatment of a panic attack? Because, you know, as I say, not necessarily in the know, but it seems there could be some benefit in maybe not having that discomfort. That doesn't seem to, I suppose, get at the heart of the problem, for lack of a better term. Okay, so a couple of background things about medication, and it can have place in panic attacks, and there can be complications with it. And I'll highlight as well, being a psychological podcast, we're particularly talking about psychological strategies for dealing with panic, and medication really can have its place. And especially what we've seen is a number of people have had a long history, for example, of panic disorder, will often benefit from, say, antidepressant medication. Certain kinds of antidepressant medication can dampen people's general anxiety levels. So antidepressants can also have an anxiety-reducing effect. And so more often than not, that would be the kind of medication prescribed when people have a long history of panic disorder. But I've known people in the past to have more short-acting anxiety-reducing medication that we call anxiolytics that could be a complication. I remember an early group, many years ago, we ran a group for people who had a range of reactions, including panic reactions, and one lady was taking a particular short-acting anxiolytic medication. And whenever she felt a panic coming on, she'd have this medication. And she referred to the medication, the tablet, as her confidence. She said, when I take this, I'm taking in my confidence. Now, that was a real problem because what happened is if she got by with a panic attack, she was attributing it to the medication itself. And so in the early CBT programs for panic, they sometimes made it that people who went into the program were on no medication because the problem was the person would attribute their good recovery, potentially, to the medication itself. And so that's where David Barlow and others who worked in the panic area sometimes talked about that problem. The other problem you could get with medication is if people were on a more shorter-term anxiolytic to deal with their distress, like a newer number of Vietnam veterans who were, what could happen is when that medication reduced in their system, say to its half-life, so it was over a period of hours, there's less of it in their system, people could get kind of rebound panic reactions so there'd be some kind of reaction they'd notice in their body, which is partly from the withdrawal of the medication or the reduction of the medication, and then they'd have more panic attacks around those times, which was partly a, a medication-related effect. So generally it is worthwhile, people seeing their GP, considering medication if people have had long-term difficulties with a whole range of anxiety disorders, including panic disorder, but it's important not just to rely on the medication itself. It's still important to use some of the kind of strategies we're talking about, including facing the situation. Oh, it seems to me from everything that we've spoken about today, Dad, that you know, panic is, is not the problem. Like we mentioned it at the start in terms of, you know, it's not necessarily panic, it's more panic about the panic. But I suppose that's kind of crystallised a little bit for me 
more today and I thought of an example which I think almost you know it's tied it together for me anyway in terms of this idea you know it's not just panic it's actually how we deal with it as well and you know I was watching the the Commonwealth Games recently that were on and uh, and I was watching the swimming and Ian Thorpe dad came on as a commentator and he was talking about uh, the young swimmer Molly O'Callaghan so 18 year old Australian swimmer and she beat Emma McKeon basically Australia's most decorated swimmer of all time she beat her in one of her pet events the 100 meters freestyle and you know it was a great win and Ian Thorpe was talking about Molly O'Callaghan this young 18 year old girl and he said I knew that she was going to win when I could see her hands trembling before she dived into the pool And I thought, that's absolutely bizarre. Like, if we look down here at the list of symptoms of a panic attack, like trembling hands, and I'm sure, you know, many of the other symptoms she would have been going through at that time, they look like a panic attack. And and to, you know, someone like yourself or me, maybe potentially us mere mortals who aren't elite athletes, it would be a lot more uncomfortable to be in that situation. But Ian Thorpe spoke about the way that, you know, as an elite athlete, if you can stay right on the edge of anxiety, like the way that he spoke about it is, if you can get right up to the edge without being overwhelmed, that's the kind of peak state of arousal for performance in a way. So if I look at you know Molly O'Callaghan's hands trembling as she's about to jump into the pool, in many ways that's panic. But through what she'd been through, through her skills and experience as an elite athlete, she was able to harness that in a way that she turned that into kind of peak performance. And so it seems to me that, you know, not that that's an easy thing to do and, and you know, my word, what, a, what an actually incredible thing to do to be able to harness that for performance. But at the same time, it suggests that there is a little bit of a fine line in some ways. Like we talk about the idea that, you know, the physiological response for panic and excitement are similar Well, that does suggest that, you know, with practice, you know, maybe with that experiential practice, with that education, sort of the the two elements of uh, of which we can support ourselves, well, it seems to me that, you know, it's it's not necessarily that panic is that ultimately negative, all-encompassing, you know, horrendously distressing situation that, you know, I think I potentially felt that one time in the city of Melbourne. You know, it seems to me that, you know, A, it's a... A natural part of life to, to feel panicked in certain situations but also it seems that you know we can get to the stage and you know again I'm, I'm certainly not there but elite athletes anyway seem to be at the stage where they can you know even not harness it for their own you know benefit they can at least lean into it and accept it to the point of going you oh, know this is actually a part of performance and it's not necessarily something that's you know bad to be feeling it's actually how we deal with it in this situation so I think it's fascinating I suppose to kind of contrast those two elements of well yeah you know like it's going to be so distressing and uncomfortable but also you know like potentially there is you know whether it be a little message in it for us about you know something that's you know bothering us or you know maybe there is a way that we can kind of harness that feeling in a particular way. Yes so panic relates to arousal Positive arousal and negative arousal. It overlaps with excitement. It overlaps with the kind of reactions that, through evolution, are designed to help us survive through fight, flight and freeze mechanisms. So part of it is accepting that side of things. And the other thing is by taking the pressure off to not have to be in control all the time. So someone said recently in a conference presentation that dysregulation is not the problem. Getting stuck 
in dysregulation is the problem. Through our day-to-day lives, at times we're going to feel a little bit stressed, a little bit out of control, not so calm. We might be fired up in some ways. We might have a low level of energy. It's getting back to a certain relatively organised, relatively regulated kind of state. That's a whole lot of it. And well, just before we finished out, I know you had a, a, a nice story of a way that someone dealt with a, a panic attack that you wanted to mention as well. Yeah, well, actually, it was just that it was so weird because recently a colleague described how a client had handled a panic reaction in a quite unusual way. And it reminded me, I saw someone with agoraphobia 30 years ago who used the same approach. And so what happened about 30 years ago, there's this lady with severe agoraphobia. She could barely get out to the front letterbox. I visited her at her house and then gradually we'd walk 50 metres down the road and then go back home and then we gradually extend that a little bit further. Well, one day I visited her She's able to keep on walking around the block. Fine. She didn't have any real trouble with it. I asked her, what did you do? She said, well, I got so sick of this. I got so sick of having this problem that one day I was standing at the front of the house, just at the front fence, and I looked along the street and I was feeling really uncomfortable and I said to myself, okay, die. Die then. Drop down dead and die. She felt this panic as though she dropped dead and died. She said, okay, well, die. And it didn't happen. And so she thought, oh, wait a minute, I might feel like this, but actually, no, maybe it's not so dangerous. And then she walked on. Now, strangely enough, a colleague described how someone that she was seeing recently used this same strategy. She basically said it to herself, in a sense, testing it out, okay, die then. And well, naturally enough, she didn't die, but I thought, And well, that sounds like a pretty extreme form of exposure, but I suppose it makes the point in some kind of way. And I suppose it also gets across the point how challenging it can be for people to face uncomfortable situations. And we acknowledge that, how uncomfortable it can be for people to face feared situations or situations where they've felt panic in or fear that they would feel panic in. But if people can approach it step by step and be a bit compassionate with themselves and take it gradually, it tends to lead to really helpful benefits down the track. Well, that certainly does come across, Dad. I think, you know, these are physiological reactions. And, you know, if something's, you know, perceived danger and, you know, we've got mechanisms within ourselves, regardless of whether that's a perceived danger or an actual danger, that's, you know, it's going to feel the same in that situation. But I suppose what I've taken from today is, you know, there's things that we can do about that. And it's you know, not, a, not the case of, of being beholden to those you know, intense feelings when they do come up. So, Dad, thanks for chatting with me about all this today. I'll uh, put all the resources up for today's episode at sykespills.com.au. I know you've written a handout on panic, uh, which I'll put up there. And we've got a couple of, of previous episodes on anxiety and panic too, which have got some stuff in there related to today's episode. So we'll put those up on the episode page for today. But thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I look forward to the next one. Good then, Rowan.